we look at a new storage technology, non-volatile memory express, or NVMe. Well, it's not new. It's been around for a while. I mean, you can get NVMe drives on Amazon. The big deal here, and the thing we're going to focus on today, is that NVMe SSDs are fast. As NVMe drives go mainstream, make their way into enterprises and clouds at scale, what's that mean for distributed storage networking? So we play Move the Bottleneck on today's Data Knots. Packetpushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanauts shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcast directory. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at DC Banks, and with me is Chris Wall, who has the power to remove bottlenecks by smiting server bezels with his fist. Follow his global exploits at Chris Wall on Twitter. Our guest today has appeared on the Packet Pushers Network multiple times, most recently, at least on the Datanauts show, in our discussion of erasure coding. That goes back to Datanauts episode 93. Welcome back, Jay Matz. Thank you. Thank you very much. We got talking about NVMe. We've been having a conversation over email for a bit, and, and, and both of us doing homework and research on the impact NVMe performance might have on the network, which is going to be the bulk of our conversation today. Now, your involvement with NVMe, you're actually, you're involved on the the, the standards board, or what's your tie-in? Yeah, so I am Cisco's representative for what's called the promoters board, which is effectively the board of directors for the NVM Express group. And I also participate on the technical working group as well. So I'm, I'm pretty involved in what's happening with NVMe. I've written a few blogs for NVM Express and a few webinars and that kind of stuff. So I'm pretty heavily involved in the Nature and nurture of NVMe. Well, let's start at the beginning for folks that are maybe unfamiliar with what NVMe is. Let's uh, let's go through some things to establish what it's all about. And, and right at the beginning, what is NVMe? Is it a disk drive? Is it a, a bus type, a protocol, an interface? How would you describe it? It's been used as all the above, but typically it's best to think of it as sort of an alternative to SCSI, a protocol for communicating with storage devices. The best way to think about this is if you think about the history of storage One of the things that has been obvious to pretty much anybody who's not been living under a rock is that it's been getting faster, right? So we start off with tape, we start off with spinning disks, and then we move to non-volatile memory like flash and, and their form factors like SSDs. And as we start to move faster and faster into the storage space, it gets closer and closer to memory type speeds. You may have heard of technologies like 3D Crosspoint from Intel or Xenon from Samsung. Those technologies are getting really, really close to the kind of speed and durability that we normally have associated with things like DRAM. Now, we're not there yet, but it's getting much closer. And so as we start to look at how to address these different types of memory and storage technologies, the approach we had been taking with SCSI looked like it probably wasn't going to get us to where we wanted to go. And so... The long and the short of it is that we created a new protocol for accessing that storage called NVMe, or Non-Volatile Memory Express. Awesome. Well, let me take a moment to pause from smashing bezels, apparently, with my bare hands. I guess that's <laughs> something I do now. And just pause it. Is it fair to say that NVM Express was designed for SSDs or that kind of era, while older protocols were designed for rotational media? Well, yes, but I think that the real issue here is that I want to be fair to SCSI here because there's nothing wrong with SCSI per se. SCSI is ubiquitous Mm. for a reason. It is the way of addressing devices in general. But there's a difference between addressing devices and addressing storage. So 
yes, as a result, when we were talking about spinning disc and we simply replaced it with non-spinning media like Flash, the issues were that we got faster results because, you know, hey, no moving parts. That's that's pretty good. But is it the best we can possibly do? Is it the most efficient that we can possibly get? And the answer is, well, no, not really. So, yeah, we were looking to try to up-level you know, the way that we address memory and the way that we address storage in a much more native format for hosts and CPUs and that kind of thing. Would you say NVMe specs are mature, Jay? I mean, I, I was doing some homework on this, and it looks like some of the earliest work goes back to 2009 timeframe, and there's been a lot of iterations of different groups and comings and goings. Now we're 2017, and are we kind of settled in on what NVMe is going to be? Oh, absolutely. We've already released the version 1.3 of the spec, and as you pointed out, I think it was 2014 when, was it 1.1? I think 1.1 was let out into the wild. And yeah, it's quite mature. We've got drivers for every major operating system. You'll find PCIe drives for NVMe for laptops, for desktops, for all kinds of consumer types of equipment. We're starting to see some of the emerging solutions for enterprise as well. Yeah, it's quite mature. So at what point, I guess, are we paying off this technical debt and saying, all right, NVMe is the standard interface. It's used by all SSDs. This is like, this is the cut point. We're moving forward with this type of technology. Well, like with most technologies, there's a cost point. As the NVMe technology comes down in cost, then the likelihood of, of implementation as, at, at the PCIe level in particular is going to increase. We've seen different estimates as to when it's going to actually have that crossover point. Some people say around 2020, some people say around 2019, some people say around 2021. So, you know, your mileage will vary depending upon what kind of categories you're looking for. But realistically, this is more of an economic question than a technological one. That seems pretty common, right? It's the mm-hmm. the driving down of costs that allowed us to stop, you know, storing backup data to to tape and to disk as an example or object store and things like that. It, it all comes down to those green dollars. Yeah, they had to put the lettuce on the sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jay, I mean, the the spec is mature. It it sounds like we're headed towards it being the standard interface for all SSDs eventually. Operating system support, is that ubiquitous now? It seems like as recently as uh, 2015 or so, there were some concerns about not being able to use an NVMe drive as a boot drive. But I kind of get the feeling we're past all of that. Well, so, so the booting process is a little bit more complicated than just saying whether or not you can. You can boot from SSDs, uh, NVMe SSDs, but there are some other things that you needed to to do that kind of fall outside the scope of this. But by and large, we're we're at a place where it's not going to be too too long before you have a completely pure NVMe approach to that. And you're right about the operating systems. Different operating systems have different life cycles. What happens at Microsoft is very different than happens inside of the Linux community, which is very different than you know happens inside of VMware. But all of the different vendors are supporting NVMe. It's just when they actually release their support and qualifications, that is the question. But nobody's giving up on it by any means. Nobody's putting it aside. Everybody realizes that this is a a high-priority deal. I remember that being a thing to deal with with various vendors when it came to trim, when SSDs were being introduced into desktops and servers and whatnot. And, you know, how are we going to handle, you know, when blocks of data are no longer in use so we don't completely destroy an SSD? So. That's always a challenge, I feel, in this market. Well, I think what, what they've also realized, too, is that any technology that winds up working its way through the maturity cycle is going – you're going to find out the limitations of whatever medium that you're using. 
And the issue with trim in particular, which has to do with the, the way that we actually rewrite data on a disk. The reason why trim was necessary was because of the fact that you can't rewrite data the same way that you rewrite data on a spinning disk. And that creates issues over time, especially for the durability of the drive. And so trim becomes very important for solving that particular problem. But if you're just simply replacing a spinning disk with a regular drive, you may not be aware of that limitation or you may want to put it off for another generation of development. But eventually it's going to have to happen. So that's a normal process of the development cycle as well. Absolutely. And kind of pivoting back to NVMe specifically, are kind of all storage makers on board with this or is there some splits in the ecosystem? I have not seen much of a split. I think that most of the storage vendors are on board with this. I mean, taking a look at the membership of the NVM Express group, it's just huge. I don't know anybody who's not a member of the NVM Express group in some form or fashion. That's a major indicator of who is paying attention versus who is actually developing versus who is actually supporting it and, and what time. But I don't know anybody who's not participating in that. I love the quote, addressing devices versus addressing storage to talk about what we've been doing to what we're trying to do. You know, rotational media has had a ton of latency due to seek time. I mean, it's it's basically the mechanics of having to move a physical needle, uh, if you will, to a specific position on a platter head. And it's usually measured in a handful of milliseconds, uh, which felt fast back in the day, but now is incredibly slow. So let's not address those devices, but instead address the storage subsystem itself or the fabric itself. Uh, which commonly has a cache layer, may entirely be built from SSDs and flash devices, such as with all flash arrays. So I thought that was an interesting quote. Ethan, what's tickling your noodle? The point that Jay made about maturity, um, I was curious since NVMe is, it almost feels like if you're on the enterprise side of things that NVMe is this new emergent storage technology. And it really isn't. It's really got a lot of years behind it. Uh, A lot of industry support, both on the operating system side, uh, on the driver and standardization side, and uh, then among storage manufacturers themselves. I mean, everybody's on board. We're just seeing more and more products become mainstream. And this really isn't something to be scared of. Like, oh, I hope they figure out that NVMe thing and then maybe I'll try it. I mean, we're there. It, it's a mature technology. Okay, Jay, now that we have a good cursory and introductory level knowledge of NVMe, you know, we got to get nerdy because it's the data not. So, Let's talk about queuing. I know one of the big advantages in the NVMe performance itself seems to be queues that leverage parallelism. So for an example, if you have a SAS device or SATA device, your single command queue is looking at 32 commands or 256 commands, depending if we're talking about SAS or SATA. Whereas with NVMe, it gets like bonkers level, 65,535 queues, as well as 65,536 commands per queue. I mean, that's ridiculous. What the heck is going on here? Yeah, so it, it's winded up being something pretty insane. But let's let's try to define our terms just a little bit by what we mean by queue, because Good I think idea. we actually have a slightly different approach for queuing in, in a SCSI or SATA environment than we do for NVMe, and it's useful to know what the differences are. Think of it this way. If you've got a host with a you know compute functionality and you've got a storage device, the host with the CPU cannot normally talk to a SCSI drive directly. You have to go through a, an adapter. What that adapter does is it translates the commands from the CPU into something that the drive can understand and vice versa. In doing so, you create a queue for putting in the commands to talk to that storage device. That makes sense so far? Okay, so I'm far with you. So far, so good, yeah. 
Okay, good. What we look to do at that point in time is we try to figure out a way to move beyond that one-to-one connection. And the way that we do that in NVMe is – now, when I say NVMe, I'm talking about specifically on a PCIe bus here. CPUs can talk native PCIe, and so if you make the drives talk native PCIe, you don't need to have an adapter. You don't need to have a translation between the host and, and the corresponding storage. So there's no queuing to go through the adapter. However, when you put in a command to be able to talk to in an NVMe perspective, we create what are called queue pairs. Uh, there's an administrative queue, there's a submission queue, and there's a completion queue. And why we do this is for this exact same reason that we do this with an adapter. But now we can take these individual queue pairs, and instead of pinning it to an adapter, we can pin it to a CPU core, which means that if you've got a CPU with a bunch of different cores, we can address different NVMe queue pairs per core. And that's how we can scale to having many, many different queues. And the address space for it is in the you know the 65,000 number of right, range, right. Uh, range. Realistically, you're not going to get that. You'll probably get you know four. Eight. I was going to say you're not you're not using sixty five thousand queues and that many no. commands, but but it just means that this isn't limited to like we talked about with SAS and SATA. It was one queue and X number of commands. You know, thirty two two fifty six, like two fifty six, and and even when you expand it with some technologies where we make the queue even larger due to caching, et cetera, felt huge. But it's dwarfed with the capabilities with having sixty five plus thousand queues and commands that could be sent. That's no longer the bottleneck, I suppose. Right. And when we start to scale that out into a NVMe over fabrics, which we'll get to in a little bit, I suppose, then the actual number of queues starts to increase because you're you're pinning the relationships to the cores. And so you can have multiple queues per core. And Jay, you don't have to, you're not bottlenecked down to a linear servicing of those requests, right? So, I mean, if you can pin a core to a queue, you can now service multiple cores at a time, meaning multiple storage I.O. requests coming inbound from the application software can now be handled at a time, and that NVMe drive can serve multiple processes at a time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and therein lies the, the efficiency route. So we get really efficient relationships between the host and the storage because of the way that we address these things, the way, the way that we configure the relationships between them into a many-to-many relationship. It even seems to be some neat implications for the applications themselves. If they're written to take advantage of parallel cores across the system, then each you know thread could potentially be retrieving data from the disk subsystem, if you will, in parallel. So you know, for a graphics application, it's getting some, it's rendering some you know images. This one's grabbing something from a, a visual perspective, some colors. You know, there's all sorts of things that could be done even at the app layer that just were bottlenecked before. You couldn't deal with that kind of throughput before. It's pretty mind blowing. Well, not just the applications, but also operating systems. There are some examples of startups who have been rewriting versions of operating systems to be able to handle these multiple queues. NetApp, for instance, just purchased a company called Plexastore, which did that. Their performance metrics for handling multiple queues through their OS was incredibly fast. You know, multiplications of the POSIX approach. Yeah, there are people who are answering these questions in a uh, in a very interesting way, and I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface of the kind of real changes that people can see from these things in the future. Jay, another performance-related feature of NVMe that I ran across was called interrupt steering. Can you explain what interrupt steering is and how it impacts performance? Well, it follows along with what we were just talking about. If I can have multiple cues to a core, I can then respond back to an individual core without disrupting the rest of the CPU. 
So in other words, when I send out a command from a CPU, the CPU doesn't sit around and wait for it to happen. It goes off and does its other thing. So when a command comes back from the storage device, it will interrupt the CPU and say, hey, I'm ready. I'm done. Ha, come get me. <laughs> and so the CPU has to stop what it's doing. It has to context switch and it has to go pick up the completed command. However, if you can append this to an individual core, then you can steer the interrupt to the appropriate core without affecting the other cores on the CPU. So you're actually not affecting the individual cores that aren't related to whatever the Q pair is, is doing. And that's why interrupt steering is, is so powerful because your CPU isn't necessarily hamstrung by this buckshot of interrupts coming in from the storage device that cause it to stop whatever it's doing across all the different cores. Now, the interesting thing about interrupt steering is that NVMe, you're talking about performance, interrupt steering is extremely valuable for handling the core management. But one of the things that we're finding out is that PCIe-related NVMe drives can easily overwhelm a CPU. Uh, I can take a couple of, of NVMe drives and put it onto a PCIe bus and have the CPU doing absolutely nothing but I.O. Now, that's not good because if I have a CPU doing nothing but I.O., it's not doing anything else, right? Now there's actually an interesting thing that's being discussed that's been promoted by a number of different vendors called polling, which is actually something we used to do ages and ages ago. So we're returning back to an older technology, an older process. And what polling does is the CPU actually does its own thing. And then when it's ready to go and find out if the storage is done, it will pull the storage to see whether or not the command has been completed, which is an interesting dilemma because now that means that for once the storage is actually faster than the CPU. And now we have to slow it down in order to get the CPUs to catch up. This is still really kind of an interesting computer science question, but I find it kind of humorous myself. It's interesting hearing you talk about the interrupts and, and kind of having to interrupt everything. It reminds me of traditional pause frames versus priority flow control and just how that's being mm. solved in the network world. Moving the conversation a bit towards a comparison, PCI Express or PCIe, I think is something that everyone's relatively familiar with. I, I certainly have a number of different cards using that in my computer at home. Can you relate that to NVMe or, or contrast it a little bit? Well, PCIe is an interconnect protocol that the CPU uses to talk with different devices. So by placing something onto a PCIe bus, you're effectively eliminating some of the additional abstraction layers to communicate with that device. And so unfortunately, PCIe is a bus, it's not a fabric, which means that if you're, you know, uh, your, your audience uh, being network guys are very familiar with the differences between uh, buses versus, you know, switched fabrics. So if I, have a, if I have a PCIe bus, that means that anything on the buses can possibly interrupt, no pun intended, the flow if something goes wrong, Yeah. So the real issue here is that you want to have the ability to have a number of NVMe devices or on, on the PCIe bus, but without having it distract the bus from any kind of blue screening or purple screening in your, in your environment if something goes wrong. So you have this kind of trade-off between the number of devices you want to have on a PCIe bus versus the scalability of a PCIe environment. And so having said that, there is a push from the PCIe vendors to provide that kind of access, right? So you can buy an external PCIe switch. You can buy a host bus adapter that's PCIe that extends the PCIe environment out across of a, a network outside of the server. The main limitation from those kinds of devices is that, if I'm not mistaken, I think you have 126 devices on a bus. I think two of those addresses are reserved. But take that with a grain of salt. I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's like either 126 or 
maybe the whole 128 or something like that. But you can do that for like a rack scale type of environment. So does that translate to what an NVMe fabric is? Or is an NVMe fabric something different than a bunch of NVMe drives hanging off the PCIe bus? No, no, it's very, very different. So one of the things that happens inside of a scalable system is that once you start removing devices away from a host, you have the added problems of what happens when messages get lost and what happens when things go bad. Fabrics, by their nature, tend to have built-in environments that can do things like recovery, that can do things like retransmission, that do things like high availability, active and passive pathing, uh, multipathing in general. Those are all what fabrics do. They have a, an acute understanding of the nature of the relationship of the network, not just the devices. And so that makes a big difference in the way that you actually handle scale. What PCIe does is it, it treats the entire thing like a, a giant bus. So everything is still on a bus relationship, whether it's inside of a server or not inside of a server. The relationship between the devices is still exactly the same. There's no, there's no real multipathing. There's no, there's no failover. There's no recovery mechanisms designed in that kind of environment. Now, you can find some of those things done by you know, vendor implementations, but not in the protocol, not in the actual bus technology itself. The coolest thing here to me was the parallelism. As Jay put it, you get cues that can map to cores and then support multiple read and write operations in parallel rather than traditional storage media, which would be more or less in serial, serial operations as I understood it. So you get parallelism on a, on a massive scale, you know, far more cues than we actually would have cores. So, I mean, you got plenty of scale for as many cores as the average host is going to throw at the box, which seems like a pretty big deal and, and, and future-proof from, uh, from where I'm standing. What grabbed your attention, Chris? A little tongue-in-cheek, you know, for those startups that Jay was mentioning that are, are rewriting operating systems to take advantage of parallel queues and all the magic of NVMe, I have a request. If you could take on a reboot of BIOS, if you remember BIOS, it was, I mean, come on, it was the most amazing operating system ever created. Come on, I'll pour a little liquor out for my homies if you can redo that uh, for parallel NVMe access. Well, all right. We've talked about NVMe. We have talked about uh, the performance of NVMe and some of how that is done. Now, Jay, part of what you and I have been exchanging some emails on is the problem that the high performance of NVMe drives is going to create for Ethernet networks, particularly, which seems to be uh, you know the common medium here. So we got low latency. We got high IOPS for NVMe. Now that we talked about those numbers, but those are characteristics of these drives. Maybe a place to start, Jay, is to help people understand the sort of bandwidth that could be saturated with uh, actually a relatively low number of NVMe drives. Well, it's the thing that seems to be glossed over when we start talking about the performance aspects of NVMe. I mean, the thing is that a rising tide will lift all boats, and NVMe is raising the tide to tsunami levels. It's not uncommon for a normal network, like a, a, a typical fiber channel network using SCSI will have you know, 150,000 to 200,000 IOPS per initiator. And now we're talking about having initiators and, and network that have to handle per drive a million and a half IOPS, you know, and then we have systems with 24 or 48 drives. So it doesn't take a genius to realize really quickly that if I've got 24 drives, each pushing out of 1.5 million IOPS, I'm going to have a bandwidth problem very quickly. 
because the contention for that bandwidth is, is immediate. Now, we're talking worst-case scenarios. Obviously, we're not looking at running all these things full bore in a sustained rate over time. But in a lot of ways, that actually causes some problems because it's the unpredictability of when the network is going to get hit that causes the grief, right? So we need to make sure that we understand that if I've got a device that's going to be pushing out 10, 20, 30, 40 million IOPS at you know multiple hundred gig interfaces, because there are devices and appliances like that with several hundred gig interfaces, what is that going to mean to the network? It's going to have a profound effect on not just the storage device, not just on the host, but also how people plan their networks around, you know, the quality of service dedicated to storage. <sighs> okay, so <laughs> breathe deep. <laughs> well, it's funny is is uh, you, you and I have been doing some research on this, and we got connected with a, a professor over at uh, UCAL Berkeley. I think I've forgotten the exact uh, university that he was at, but. Um, we saw you know, some of the specs of what they're working on to do massive data transfer between uh, organizations where they were just specking out uh, like one box with not that many drives in it and flooding out 100 gig, no problem with these drives. Oh, yeah. They're not the only ones. I've seen tests from a number of different companies that are really pushing the envelope beyond what anybody really ever expected. I mean, we've lived in a paradigm where the storage has always been the slowest common denominator, and now it's not. And people are having to, to, to rethink their assumptions. What kind of capacity are we talking about with these you know, 12, 24 drives, that kind of jazz? Because it sounds like it would be relatively small. I, I get that it could push 40 million IOPS, but is this petabyte scale? Is it just gigabyte scale or multi-terabyte scale? What are we talking about? Well, I, I think that any type of storage device is going to have a different form factor question than the actual bandwidth question. The real issue here is not what the ultimate capacity is. It's how much is being addressed and accessed at the same time. And the way that storage devices tend to work is that you have a virtualization engine on the other side that basically means that it doesn't really matter how much capacity that you have. It's going to it's going to try to spread out the workload internally. But it still has to have a front-end interface into the network. And that can be profoundly impactful. So even if you're only using, you know, uh, a, you know, like a one terabyte, two terabyte, four terabyte drives inside of these different things, the likelihood of you sucking down 20 terabytes at a shot is is rare. But it doesn't change the fact that you're still going to have to suck it through what's effectively a straw. Interesting. You mentioned earlier, Jay, NVMe over over fabric. Now, is there a definition in this context for fabric? Because that means a lot of different things depending on the protocol. I mean, do we mean Ethernet fabric or something unique to NVMe? No, that's a good point. And, and thanks for bringing that up. Because the way that NVMe looks at fabric is that it, it equates to a transport. And then we have something called NVMe over fabrics. And fabric and fabrics in this case are slightly different, enough to cause enough of an annoyance, right? So the idea behind NVMe over fabrics is that you have a transport agnostic system for being able to interconnect the protocol of NVMe to the underlying network capabilities. So, for instance, you'll have a, a shim in between the network and the NVMe, and that shim is called NVMe over fabrics. So, for instance, you have the NVMe spec with the, with the creation of the queues. You have the commands uh, that go along the queues. But then you have to be able to connect to a transport type. And the transport types that are currently available are RDMA-based, which means that uh, you're InfiniBand, Rocky, iWarp, iSer, those kinds of things, and fiber channel-based. 
And it's up to the Fiber Channel Group. It's up to the IETF. It's up to the InfiniBand Trade Federation to, you know, create the interconnects from their side up into the NVMe over Fabrics shim. And so that's how the Fabrics is defined from the protocol side of things. Okay, so from an Ethernet perspective, we don't have an NVMe over Fabric connector from that shim into Ethernet at this point, where it's where you'd be doing an an end cap of of an Ethernet frame around an NVMe packet. Not at this point in time. In fact, um, there is work under the NVMe Express group about doing this for for plain vanilla TCP interactions. It's still a work in progress, and I'm kind of limited as to what I can talk about it due to NDAs. But sure, sure. that very thing about you know, doing a, a standard NIC for running NVMe is one of the main attractions for the TCP version. So if I'm in a distributed storage fabric, in other words, I've got, let, let's say VMware vSAN, you know, that style where I've got data on a storage network distributed across multiple hosts and Ethernet is my interconnect between those two, I'm probably using IP to get that storage around and I have some kind of a storage protocol that rides on top of IP that is being used. Now, the ultimate physical storage medium might be an SSD that has got NVMe to connect to that host. Once I've got the storage off of the drive and now I got to put it across the network, I'm the data block ends up in a storage protocol that we're familiar with. It's not NVMe at that point anymore. That just got the data block into the host, but to get it off the host, now it's like I said NFS or iSCSI whatever it might be. Right. Well, so you can do that kind of translation depending upon where you are in the system. NVMe itself is a block protocol. Mm-hmm. It's it's no no different from SCSI in that regard. And just like SCSI, you can actually turn that into an IP-based access. You wouldn't be able to access NVMe devices through an NFS protocol because of the way that NFS works and the way that the block storage works. Just the same way that you can't do that with SCSI. You you wouldn't mount a block device using NFS. So you wouldn't mount an, uh, an NVMe device using NFS. It all has to do with what, what would the NFS client and server be able to address and then, then present over the IP network. So to that end, you're still going to see some separation from the way that different applications can access that block data depending upon whether or not they go through a file-based or object-based protocol. That still is possible and and a lot of work is actually being done to enhance some of the speed and performance issues that you find in file systems and find in object systems because now the underlying block system is so much more efficient and faster. So considering that and considering that distributed storage is pretty much the new normal, the way a lot of folks are doing storage in their data centers, does NVMe's network saturation capability impact distributed storage network design? I think it does because once you get to the point about being saturated, you really have to know everything about everything because at that point in time, you're getting down to the concept of prioritization. You know, if it's not saturated, then who cares, right? It's it's all about whose problem is it. And unfortunately, with NVMe, now we have the issue that it's not easy to throw a problem over the wall and say, oh, this is the storage guy's problem or this is the host guy's problem or this is the network guy's problem. It goes both ways. So the issue really is going to come from what type of storage access are we having issues with? Where does the saturation come from and how do you manage it? So the problem really will come from reading data. And you don't know in advance where you're going to read the data from, especially in a distributed system. Yeah, We need to make it more readily apparent as to where the network is actually going to get impacted through the concept of, of reading data from multiple different devices across a, across a distributed system. 
at that point in time, you you really need to figure out where the end-to-end management limitations are because it's not just the data. It's also the metadata that you have to be aware of, right? Because the, the data is, is what we really pay attention to, but in distributed systems, the metadata will dwarf the actual data in a heartbeat. And so at that point in time, the network architecture will make a huge difference, especially when you have applications that don't live on single devices. Okay. So in the meantime, we've got... We've got the networks we got, and pushing this data across the network is going to be – it's going to be an issue, right? As, as I said in the intro, we've kind of moved the bottleneck here. We've gone from the disk drive itself, the physical media and latency and so on being the bottleneck to no longer being a bottleneck. Now we can saturate the network. So how do we manage that saturation? You know, Network design is one aspect of it. There's a, there's a bunch of knobs we could turn and, uh, and, and and software we could apply that maybe would help us here, Jan. I wanted to get your take on a on, on a bunch of different things Chris and I will go back and forth with on you. Uh, I had thought of a couple of QoS-related possibilities that might be brought to bear. One of them is congestion management, which is almost tongue-in-cheek because, uh, you know, if you, we use QoS congestion management techniques like, uh, uh, you know, basically who goes first if there's congestion on an interface – does anybody actually run congestion management successfully in their data center fabric that you know of that that's even worth talking about? Oh, well, sure. I mean, don't forget that we've been doing this kind of thing for a long time with uh, a variety of, of different storage protocols, right? So iSCSI in particular has its own built-in congestion management system with TCP, right? You know, the the idea of fast start, slow start, those kinds of things. And the big problem that people have been having with congestion management for iSCSI is the need for it to be ubiquitous across the network. All the settings have to be exactly the same. With fiber channel over Ethernet, you had the same problem, but that was handled on a link-by-link basis. And so you really have the pause frames that are put into the PFC, into the priority flow control, that are designed specifically to be able to handle how much crediting you have on a link-by-link basis. So we use congestion management all the time in storage, and it's true for all types of, of applications. So I don't think that this is necessarily something we have to reinvent the wheel for. And I don't think people have to panic either. It's just let's understand the principles and the concepts first and and figure out, you know, how the best way to apply them here is. Okay. You know, pause frames. In other words, I'm full. Please don't send me any more. Okay. That's uh, a reasonable way to deal with congestion management and not to end up with full buffers and then having to drop packets and so on. Uh, but what about uh, congestion avoidance through perhaps traffic shaping? You know, could we maybe shape storage traffic flows from NVMe drives and then uh, avoid congestion that way? Well, the question really is going to be is where do the traffic shapers get their information from? Does it come from the storage devices? Not usually. And so there's a, there's a gap there that really needs to be filled between how the traffic shapers can use something in a dynamic fashion to be able to handle you know, the types of traffic that can come from NVMe devices. You may recall that not all storage is created equal. Different applications have different characteristics and fingerprints. So highly bursty traffic is going to have a very different traffic pattern than highly sustained traffic, right? And so the ability for a traffic shaper to understand in advance what's likely to happen, to my knowledge at this point in time, isn't really storage-centric. It's it's more netric-centric. And that's where the limitation of NVMe is starting to be exposed or the limitation that NVMe exposes because what's happening is that the relationship between a host and its corresponding NVMe device is end-to-end. It's not going through airlocks like you go from a compute to an airlock to a network to an airlock to the storage device. You know, I've, I've long used the phrase data on a stick, 
which is how compute and networks tend to think of storage. It's just data at the other end of the wire. But now it's much more nuanced than that. It's much more involved. And so traffic shapers in particular aren't prepared for the kind of fluctuations that will guide them towards being able to shape the traffic in an appropriate way for massive amounts of throughput. And that's the issue, I think, right there, because it's not like it's mysterious how to mark traffic and then shape it to a specific rate. But you're suggesting that because the storage rates are going to fluctuate in a given data transfer or, or just that you'll have different data transfers happening throughout a day, the appropriate level of shaping could vary. And so rather than you're, you're saying you wouldn't want to just set like a static shaper that uh, you know prevents a congestion because you've, you've set a ceiling on it you believe there's something more dynamic required to get the job done properly. Well, right. And you just identified one of the major questions and philosophies about how traffic needs to be shaped, right? So if we're talking about the, you know, the maximums for quality uh, of service, what about the minimums? Are you looking at delivering guaranteed minimums so that any saturation can be handled correctly and you don't starve your traffic, whether it be regular land traffic or you, you uh, talk about storage? See, the thing is that this is a concept that a lot of people don't necessarily need to get into, but it's, it's worth noting here. When you have a metric, you're trying to find out your performance of your network or your performance of your storage, we often talk about the latency and what does latency actually mean, but we don't really dig down e- into it. Latency is usually measured by what's called the time to first byte. In other words, that's the metric that we use. What's the first time you get a, a, a – the lowest latency is when you get the first byte back. But the problem is that in terms of an application, it's really of no use or interest to anybody. Applications are not interested in how long it takes to get the first byte back. They only want the last byte. That's where you know that you've got your performance issues, right? Getting half of a picture back from Facebook is about as useful as having half (laughs) a leg and trying to run a marathon. So one of the problems we have is that the performance metrics – that people get all excited about is the wrong one to think about. And that's also the one that we use for traffic shapers, right? So in NVMe, we have a different metaphor and a different model for the way that the relationship between the host and the target works. And and bear with me for a second, because I'm going to try and see if I can explain this visually using words. In a SCSI-based system, I do these handoffs consistently throughout the course of the network, right? I have a host that talks to an adapter, and I do a handoff. I have an adapter that talks to a switch, and I do a handoff. I do a switch that talks to a storage adapter, I do a handoff, and I do another handoff when I talk to the end of the subsystem in the back end. There's a whole bunch of other handoffs in the middle. But in NVMe, I do something different. In NVMe, what I do is I create a queue pair, and I place the submission queue pair on the target, not in the host, which means that my first byte response is going to be coming back to the target because that's where my submission queue actually winds up being, right? My completion queue is going to be on the host. So I'm going to have two different time frames when I'm starting to send my responses back and my acknowledgments. With the network sitting in the middle. And your network sitting in the middle. So your time to last byte can be radically different depending upon the saturation and the congestion of the network. Right? So your first byte can come back really fast because the targets actually said, oh, hey, look, I've got my first byte back. I'm, I'm glossing over a couple of these because it, it, I'm using this for illustrative purposes as opposed to this is the exact technical means of how it works. But I'm, I'm hoping you can, you can work with me on this. But if you've got that network variance in between, your time to first byte and your time to last byte can be radically different. Which you know, if you've got a congested point, you've got a, a moment or a few 
milliseconds where a packet is sitting in buffer because it's waiting for congestion to clear, yes, your performance is – it can be widely varied between first and last byte. I, I get what you're saying here. Right. Because the last byte – I mean you can actually send the data over and the completion queue entry won't be updated until whenever the network lets you do it. So the the application doesn't know that it has all the different data until it gets that completion. So that's where things become really kind of important. And it's important to note that the hosts measure that response time very differently than either the network or the storage devices do. And so that holistic management for that whole thing, the compute network and storage, becomes really important. I mean, so far, Jay, you're kind of terrifying me. It sounds like you're <laughs> putting the... Uh, like a scene one. from Guardians of the Galaxy where, uh, 2 where he's got the little baby Groot and there's the red death button for the atomic bomb and he keeps trying to press it. It sounds like this is putting that into the data center. Like, at any point in time, 30 million I.O. will just flow through your network and destroy everything. So pivoting on that just a bit, SDN, Software Defined Networking, should storage systems be talking to the network and reserving capacity on the fly for transfers to maybe assuage some of this? I am Groot. <laughs> you do a very good Vin Diesel impression. I'm I'm impressed. <laughs> That's what my wife says. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the answer is so. So the question really is how and when, right? You know, should you know should storage systems be talking to the network? Yes. Should we be talking about reserving capacity on the fly? Yes. Where is this done? Good freaking question. You know, the thing about software to find anything is right now. And this goes to the conversation that uh, Ethan and I have been having is that it's it's still relatively static. You know, software-defined storage goes to the storage device and makes a note of it. There's a configuration, but it doesn't do anything really physical. It's just a it's more of a configuration than anything else. And the same thing pretty much with the network, you know, speaking with a, a really broad brush. And the problem is that so far in software-defined systems, there isn't much in terms of telemetry. Now if you want that kind of feedback mechanism, if you want that kind of visibility into what is actually happening, you got to have the ability to communicate between the different elements inside the system. Now, one of the advantages of NVMe is that there are advances in telemetry that will allow a management system, a switch, a host to be able to understand what's going on inside of the device. That's relatively new. But there's no existing, to my knowledge, software-defined approach being able to capitalize on that yet. So mm. that's one of the things that we, we have to have. And in my, my humble opinion, anything that you really want to call defined, as in software defined, <laughs> really has to have a telemetry and feedback loop. And right now, much of what I see in terms of software defined X really is software implemented solutions or software managed solutions because it's missing those key feedback telemetry items. And for this kind of thing, you're going to have to have it if you're going to try to find a dynamic system that's going to be able to adapt over time. Yeah, yeah. Meaning it's it's not very reactive to changes in in the architecture itself. You tell it what to do, it executes on that. It kind of tries to maintain a declarative state as to what you've told it to do, but it's not really managing itself. Uh, beyond right, that and it's point. a regression analysis. Meaning you establish a set of parameters, you establish a policy, and then it will do everything it possibly can to adhere to that policy, whether it's in the best interest of the system or not. Yeah. So, Jay, I, I'm hearing all this, and we're a lot of the background context. We've been assuming a converged network, and, and maybe we go back to the old days where we just back away from converged infrastructure and we build a dedicated storage network now. I, I don't even know if architecturally we can do that because so many people have gone to converge, but is that something we should be considering, isolating the storage traffic again? Well, I, I think that there's there's always a sweet spot for different technologies. 
And you've, if you've got certain types of problems, you should use the right technology for the job. I've never been one to dismiss a technology if it solves a particular problem in a way that's desirable. So I think what we're going to find is that the typical approach to introducing new technologies is going to work with NVMe just like it's worked with everything else. That is, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to replicate systems that we currently have to make sure that it works properly. We don't inject too many new variables into the system. We still have a lot of companies and a lot of customers who are using block storage in a traditional fashion, right? 80% of all flash arrays are hooked into a fiber channel network. So they're already attached to a, you know, a dedicated storage network. I don't see any reason why somebody would arbitrarily change that metaphor just because we're talking about NVMe. There are certain advantages to, to running in those kinds of environments because, you know, fiber channel is mature. It's got, you know, it's got a discovery protocol that's well tested. People understand it and you can find people who can manage it. All of these different things have nothing to do with the actual relationship between a host and NVMe, but you need to have it in order to run the system. I think what we're going to be finding out, though, is that over time, we will see trade-offs on an Ethernet-based approach result in different ways of handling the relationships for NVMe. For instance, the new idea of rack scale. I say new, and it's not really new, but it's a relatively new way of thinking about how at the edge of a system, you're going to have an awful lot of processing power, an awful lot of storage, and then you only go out over the main network, over the back end of the network, you know, when you absolutely have to. But as we've talked about, that's that's a little bit difficult to predict if you've got a really massively distributed system, yeah? So you need to make sure that you're not applying this tool to the wrong problem. You also wind up with the uh, idea of, you know, the this, this software-defined storage stuff that we were talking about, which is you get a box with compute and storage really close together, but now you're really looking at only sending out stuff over the over the network that you really have to. But how much volume that is, is anybody's guess at this point in time. Because our current systems for hyperconvergence, which is a specialized case of software-defined storage, were not designed for massive amounts of data volume. That's why they're very limited, because the abstraction layer that exists in a hyperconverged environment can get overwhelmed, and that's why the network has become so important inside of these hyperconverged systems, because of all the the metadata that's going across and all the, the you know the replication and so on, and it raises all kinds of questions as to what the network impact on the different types of storage are. Whereas before it was just like, well, it's just a packet that goes across the network. What do I really care? Well, because there's a difference between throughput and good throughput, you know, or good put, right? And so if, if I send you a packet and it's the wrong packet, I got to send it again. That means I've got to send two packets when I only should have done one. And that's where things get really, really important. But I think we're going to find that the actual form factor inside of a data center, the actual topologies are going to be a little bit more creative. We're going to see top of rack storage in, in, as opposed to maybe hyperconvergence or, or on the other end, maybe that maybe the SANS, right? So you'll see leaf node cross networks with massive storage and compute at each leaf node. You'll see this kind of fractalization of where the actual work is being done inside of a network. I think we're going to get creative about this because we're going to have to. Cats and dogs living together, total anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> There's storage everywhere. You get the storage off my top of rack. Uh, no, I think you're highlighting something that we, I feel like we've been going through 
for quite some time with Piper Convergence and other different flavors to sort of on-demand tap into resources or distribute those resources and kind of have the full stack in each node per se with storage, network, compute, et cetera, with hyperconverged. But kind of where my mind's at is data locality. It's, it's a conversation we've had previously on the show. And now that we're introducing NVMe to the conversation, it sounds like then we could potentially solve this by positioning data in such a way that it minimizes transfer requirements, such as what you're talking about, top of rack or potentially within a, a hyperconverged architecture. Because realistically, it sounds like we're going from not caring where the data lives, because like you've mentioned earlier, the storage was always kind of the slow part, you know, the transport and whatnot weren't that big of a deal to worry about, maybe 25 gig, 100 gig, that kind of jazz, but not 500 petabyte per second type transfer, which seems to be the, the anarchy that's coming uh, with NVMe over fabrics, but the bottleneck shifting. So, so thoughts on that? I mean, digging deeper into what you're talking about, where are we going to put the storage to really monopolize on all of this bandwidth and all this throughput that's available within the storage system now, not just the network? I think it's kind of important to remember that we have multiple places inside of a system where potential bottlenecks can occur. If you were to outline and lay out exactly where different types of pausing exists, whether it be a, a buffer or a cache or um, you know, some sort of memory, whether you know, it be volatile or non-volatile, there are a lot more places inside of a system where this happens than people realize. With the ability to do non-volatile caching or buffering, you can probably do some very interesting things inside of the network where currently we don't do that kind of a thing, right? So I wouldn't be surprised if we found out that, that the systems themselves use the very technology that's causing the problems to help solve the problems. That's very meta. I like that. I, I try to be self-referential whenever I can. <laughs> but I think that it's actually important because, because what's happening now is we're, we're getting to a more of a continuum of different memory and storage capabilities we're finding non-volatile, you know, it's a science project at the moment, but we're finding non-volatile memory types that are as durable and fast as DRAM, you know, that we may see in the future, uh, in the near future. I, it's just, like I said, it's a science project, whether it actually becomes a product or not, I have no idea. But it is rather interesting because now instead of having volatile memory using for, for caching, now we can use non-volatile memory for caching. And if we're using non-volatile memory for caching, what are we using for capacity? And how does that actually fit? And where do we actually put this into play? If I can put, you know, a couple of M.2 sticks inside of a of a switch or a white box, you know, a device that acts as a switch, what can I possibly do to help mitigate these problems? What kind of intelligence can I create? You may have heard the news recently that IBM is putting more intelligence inside of the storage device itself that doesn't require a CPU. And uh, it, it's inevitable, right? You know, we, we've been having smarter and smart, smarter storage devices over, over the last few years, but we haven't taken advantage of it because there's been no way to capitalize on that intelligence. Now we can. And now we can do so in a way that's actually far more fluid than we could ever do before. We can have relationships of negotiation that we couldn't have before, as opposed to saying, you do this, do not change no matter what. Now it's, we want you to do this within these kind of parameters and you do what you think is best. That's a fascinating thing to do. It'll be scary to a lot of people, but it's it'd be fascinating if it actually works, especially if you decide to do that within a closed system. If you do that all on the back end and you provide that as appliance, who's not to say that that might actually take over the world? There's a lot of different places where we have problems inside of a data center system that can be resolved by looking at things a slightly different way, and that's what makes things very interesting to me. 
Well, Jay, with that, I think that's a perfect place to wrap up our Data Not show. And uh, before we do, Jay, I know that you're beginning to publish some uh, independent uh, reports and papers and things. Would you let people know where they can find that information and how they can support you in those efforts? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do work with the industry associations and I do work with, with Cisco. And in addition to that kind of work, the stuff that doesn't relate to either of those, I've actually been doing some independent storage blogs and education. And it costs money to get equipment and stuff. So I've created a Patreon account to try to see if I can solicit some interest in people who want to find out more about the educational side of things that doesn't really involve the industry associations or my day job. And so um, I've created a, a patreon.com slash Dr. J Metz and trying to keep that same theme with my Twitter handle, which is Dr. J Metz, try to move into doing some independent stuff that, you know, I don't get paid for elsewhere. And that's jmets.com also if you want to uh, land on Jay's blog and see what he's writing there. And for all of you listening, that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at ECBanks on Twitter. My blog is EthanCBanks.com and also PacketPushers.net. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter and his blog is WallNetwork.com. For more of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, visit PacketPushers.net. You'll find the Data Knots talking about everything infrastructure with the people who live it every day. And until then, may your server lights blink, your Ethernet pipes grow ever larger, and your cables be cleanly managed. (laughs) 